let us continue worshiping with the reading and teaching of God's Word. We will be reading from Psalm 89, verses 14 through 37, and this can be found in the Church Bibles on page 412. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant, with my, with my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will never, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne will endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to hear the word sung, hear the story retold, and uh, now meditate on a, a psalm that uh, was a song of worship and waiting. And in many ways, that's where we are today. Uh, we want to worship, and we understand we have to wait. We pray that we would worship in truth, uh, that we would wait in hope, and that along the way, Lord, you uh, would use us for your purposes and that you would receive glory, you would receive honor. Uh, feed us, teach us now, Lord. Um, I am unable to do this without your strength, and we're unable to apply this without your grace. And so we ask that you would answer these prayers and bring blessing to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, back in uh, 2010, maybe you saw there was a documentary, documentary called Waiting for Superman. Waiting for Superman, it's... 
uh, kind of exposed a little bit of the educational crisis in our culture and how that impacts different families. And uh, I am mainly struck by the title. Whether you're suffering in relation to education, you're looking for a superman. Whether you're experiencing an economic crisis, you're waiting for a superman. You look at, uh, you know, kind of whatever you face. Maybe in your family there's uh, addictions that are bringing harm to those you love, and so you're waiting for superman. Maybe it's in your own life. There's some change or longing that you've wanted for a long, long, long time, and you're, you're banking on someone showing up. Uh, those of you who like superhero movies just know that there is this, uh, in our culture, just this hunger for some things of power, even if they're fictional, to kind of grab our affections. I mean, if you saw the first Justice League movie, you could have subtitled the movie, Waiting for Superman. Like, is he going to come? We can't win without him. What we have here in Psalm 89 is uh, a story really in kind of three movements. And we, we looked at the first movement last week where this writer, his name is Ethan. We're not exactly sure which Ethan this is and quite which time he wrote. It could be the Ethan of about the 10th century B.C., uh, soon after the uh, reign of Solomon has ended and the son Rehoboam had come in to reign and the country had split and enemies were attacking and it could have been Ethan writing about what is happening. Where are the promises of King David to his son Solomon and to his son Rehoboam? This could be also uh, just time after the Babylonian conquest in the 6th century BC and Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is is destroyed, the king is killed, and they're wondering where is God. And so you have this psalm, and it has three movements. The first movement last week is, in light of what's going on, he's saying, I'm going to remember your faithfulness. I'm going to remember your love. When it gets to the end, what we're going to look at next week, though, it gets very dark very quickly. Because even though he's remembered in the first part, in the second part he says he's waiting for a Messiah, he's waiting for a Superman. At the end, he is petrified. Verse 46, how long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? So the psalm starts with remembering. The psalm in the middle here is waiting, but the psalm at the end is protest and petition. And so we're in this second part of this psalm that in the end ends dark. You just can't forget that when we look at today. This psalm ends dark with questions and concerns. And yet he's waiting. And he's waiting for someone in particular. Look at how this uh, section begins, though, verses 14 through 18. So uh, he's, this is a, a worshiper of God, a Jewish man, uh, knows uh, the Lord, the true God, Yahweh. And he's talking about this God. And so he says about God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So it's speaking about God's both his character and his power. And then he says in verse 15, blessed, blessed, happy are those. It is good. It is good for those who have learned to acclaim you. Who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Now, it's important to know that the journey of faith is a learning process. Uh, faith is uh, it's a muscle. It's a lifestyle to be developed. And 
this writer saying, you are blessed when you have learned to do this, to acclaim God and to walk in light of his presence, verse 18. They rejoice. Such ones will rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, verse 17. For you are their glory and strength. And by your favor, you exalt our horn. A horn is a symbol of strength. So you exalt our strength. You give us strength. Verse 18, indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. This opening section is saying God is our only hope. I'm, I'm putting all of my hope in this God who is righteous and strong and just, and I'm learning to trust him. Um, but look at what it says in verse 17, because I think this is uh, its one of those verses that it's easy just to fly by. He says, you, he's talking about God, God, you are our glory. You are our strength. Um, this is a person who says, my hope is not in my finances. My hope is not in a political process. My hope is not in my diet and exercise plan. My hope is not in my physician. My, my strength is not in my furnace or my furnace repairman, or in the drywall of my house, or the studs, the whole, you know. He is saying he has put all of his hope in God. He's, he's putting trust in him. Now, remember, this is in the wake of some horrible national atrocities, and he's still saying, this is where my strength lies. I'm trusting in God, in him, in him alone, um, I'm, I'm just going to throw some of them out today. I think there are maybe four categories uh, that we could put a lot of people in, if not all, uh, and, uh, in regards to, is my hope really in the Lord God? Is my hope in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Um, there are folks that would be uh, anything but Christianity people. Right, this is this, admittedly, there are some people in the world that are very opposed to Christianity. It could be because they're followers of other religions. It could be because they are atheists or agnostic. It could be because they see Christianity as a, as a threat to culture. And so let's just know that there are people in the world that are anything but Christianity people. They fear Christianity, that it does harm. Uh, men like uh, famous atheists like Christopher Hitchens would be someone who thinks that Christianity is actually bad for society. Another group of people would be everything and Christianity people. <clears throat> These are the people that just say, you know, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. Uh, let's not uh, make waves with one another. And uh, I would say there's a third group, <clears throat> excuse me, can I have that water? <clears throat> Woohoo! Glory. That tastes good. So you have anything but Christianity, everything and Christianity, and then I would say there's a, a large population in the world which are pick and choose Christianity. A large population um, you know, likes a lot of what's in the Bible, finds it very helpful. They like some of the things that they hear about God and Jesus, but then as they read through the Bible, they, they do what Thomas Jefferson actually did literally. Thomas Jefferson actually took scissors to his Bible and took out the passages that he did not like. And he made a Bible that fit Thomas Jefferson. And I think we do that. You know, I affirm what, you know, I like this Jesus who forgives. I don't like this Jesus who judges. 
I like this Jesus who blesses marriages. I don't like this Jesus who determines who is and who is not allowed to get married, right? So you start having that kind of pick-and-choose Christianity. It made me think of a quote by St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine once said, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Right? So... Just as, so there's this pick-and-choose Christianity, there's everything in Christianity, there's anything but Christianity, and then there's this, um, there is a side that says that there's a Jesus-only Christianity, right, that says, my hope really is only in Jesus, and I'm with Jesus, and what he says, and what he's asking me to do, I've learned, right, I've learned to acclaim you, I will walk with you. Even when I don't know why, <laughs> even when I'm not sure, I will obey you, I will trust you because you have proven yourself in areas that I did understand. I will now walk with you and trust you in the areas I don't understand. And I believe that in the middle of Ethan's song, he's saying that. He's saying, my strength and my glory and my trust, it's you. I'm putting my hope in you. And then he's going to build this now. Why? Why? And he's saying, because of what you have said, what you have promised, that you are going to send someone powerful, a superman. Look at verse 19. So why does he have such faith? Because he says in verse 19, once you spoke in a vision. And this word vision doesn't mean, this. in this case, it's actually not a dream. It wasn't an angelic speaker. The vision he is speaking about is there was a prophet who came to King David and spoke truth about what was going to happen in David's life and his sons and the, his future generations. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7 in a narrative form. This is now Ethan singing it back, which is really what we just did a lot of this morning. Most of the stories we have about Jesus in the manger, it's narrative. And then at Christmas time, we sing carols. We turn it into poetry because it moves us. And this is what Ethan has done. He has been moved by the narrative in 2 Samuel, and now he's turned it into a song. And he says in verse 19, Once, O God, you spoke in a vision to your faithful people. You said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior, I have raised up a young man from among the people. And who is this man? Verse 20. I have found David, my servant, and with my sacred oil I have anointed him. Uh, most of the uh, Old Testament preserves the anointing of oil to uh, prophets, priests, and kings. And David was an anointed one. Uh, the Hebrew word for anointed is where we get the word Messiah. He was anointed, uniquely chosen by God. Verse 21, and because he was uniquely chosen by God, God makes promises over him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name, his horn will be exalted. And if you read the life of David and his son Solomon, really, God provides these two men such great success, military-wise, financial-wise, 
uh, wisdom-wise, peace in the land, glorious edifices built, foreign dignitaries like the Queen of Sheba showing up saying, what is God doing here in little podunk Israel? Right? The world was just in awe of what God had done with this servant, this chosen one, this one particularly chosen by God to be blessed. Uh, David himself writes a number of the Psalms, and he reflects on his own chosenness, his unique privilege and calling. Psalm 44, verse 3, written by David, he says, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David also wrote in Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you see, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Uh, much later, someone else reflected on, Psalm, on David's life. Psalm 78, verses 67 through 72. This is what we hear about David. It says, then God rejected the tents of Joseph, the great leader of his generation. He did not choose the tribe of Judah or, or tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loved, he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. This is one of the reasons why uh, the Bible is full of names. It's because the Bible has been tracking God's promise to a particular people and a particular person. And so some of the names get very challenging for us, but let me just encourage you, when you're reading your Bible, don't give up but particularly follow the people that God tells you to follow. So the Bible begins with Adam, and then Adam has sons. One gets rejected for murder, one gets murdered, but then there's Seth. And out of Seth comes Noah, and Noah comes Shem, and out of Shem comes Abraham, out of Abraham comes Isaac, and then Jacob. And then God chooses Judah, this unique tribe, and out of Judah arises David. Out of David will follow Solomon and Rehoboam. And you keep pulling the thread of David's line, and we get to someone born in a manger. We'll get to him in a second. Because I want you to notice that there seems to be uh, some interesting phrases in Psalm 89 that I think should just cause us to go, what? It starts with verse 25. It's talking about some anointed king, and it says, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. Now, if you read the life of David, he doesn't do much seafaring. He doesn't do much with the seas or much with the rivers. But there is someone who comes in his name and in his line who can still the waves of the sea. So maybe this isn't talking about David entirely. He goes on and says, this one coming... He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, uh, his throne as long as the heavens endure. 
This is when we begin to see that the promises made to David go beyond David. There's someone who's going to be a son, like a like a son to the Father God. He's going to have control over natural elements. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles ahead to the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul reflects on the person of Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter one verses fifteen through seventeen, he's reflecting on on Jesus the Son, and we hear a little bit of some of the some of the words that. Uh, seem to fall out of Psalm 89 as well. Uh, it is interesting to note that uh, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 are also a poem. Because sometimes when you're reflecting on who God is and what he's done, about the only way you can do it is in verse and in praise and in song. And Paul is singing, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Go back to Psalm 89, because now there's a the, the break, the the somber tones begin to show themselves in this psalm because what Nathan uh, said to King David in Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, we, we now have uh, spelled out in this poem in Psalm 89. It was told that if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. And this is where Ethan is doing, he's just a good Bible student. He's meditated on the word, and he says, he knows that this is now what's happening to his nation. That the promises were made to David, but with that, those promises were also warnings. And the warning was, if they reject the word, if they don't trust me, if they don't walk with me, there will be discipline. There will be sorrows. A lot of times we reflect on the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? But I appreciate uh, what Michael Wilcock wrote in his commentary uh, he says, yes, why do bad things happen to good people? It is a big question, but we ought not to let it loom so large that it obscures a simpler fact that when bad things happen to us, it may be due to our being bad people. A lot of the sorrows and struggles that we face in our life are because we have reaped what we have sown. We... We have turned to false gods, and we've gotten what false gods offer. Sorrow, destruction, pain, sadness. In the Lord's discipline, he lets those things happen because he wants to prove that those are not what you want to build your life on. They are a house of cards. They are not good. They will not deliver. They will not satisfy. They will lead you on that wide road that leads to destruction. That's God's grace to say, don't go to those things. Wait for Superman. Wait for the true Messiah. Wait on Jesus. The, back to Psalm 89. I'll read. The, the passage closes. So verse 32 warns that 
the sons of David who don't follow will be punished and they'll experience the discipline of the Lord. But verse 33 is so rich. It says, but I will not take my love from him, from David, from his line, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. There's this wonderful little line in, uh, I'm not sure if it's first or second Timothy. Look it up for me. It says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. So even if David's line struggles or his sons fail, God says, I will keep my covenant. Though you are faithless, God remains faithful. Verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. There's nothing more uh, precious that could be sworn upon than God promising on his own holiness I will not lie to David. His line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. You know, the sun, S-U-N, is this radiant ball of energy that gives life to the world, and the moon is reflecting from the sun its life and light. And God is promised that there is going to be one radiant and ruling forever and ever and ever. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is as enduring as the sun and moon. Now, there is one of the more one of the most fascinating stories in the Gospels, and partly why the Gospels are the stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record the history of Jesus' life on earth. Um, one of the most interesting stories is because it's one of the most shocking stories, because Jesus, for the most part, uh, you know, does miracles and uh, you know, does big things, uh, but they almost seem like believable because they're true. But then there's this shocking story where he takes three men up on a mountain one day. Uh, James, uh, John, and Peter. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 9, uh, you, you, you have one of the recountings of this story. Luke 9, verse 28. Uh, so it says, about eight days after Jesus said some things, he took Peter, John, and James with him. He went up on a mountain and to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Now, this is, the, this is the stuff that's just kind of weird, just out of nowhere. His face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Like I said, this, is, this kind of just comes out of the, out of the blue. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's doing a miracle or two. Then he goes up a mountain and because, becomes dazzling glorious and two dead guys show up. The two, probably the two most famous Old Testament heroes 
arrive. Moses, the great lawgiver and deliverer out of Egypt. Elijah, the great prophet who stood against false gods and false kings and performed mighty miracles. They show up. Verse 31, it says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they, be, when they uh, became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I, I, I get what Peter's doing here. I mean, he's sitting there going, man, we have the trifecta. We have the three horsemen of the apocalypse. We have Jesus, we have Moses, and we have Elijah. We have the greatest Bible cast of Avengers ever assembled. This is going to be awesome. But what does God do to Peter's grand scheme? Uh, first, uh, the writer Luke includes this at the end of verse 33. He did not know what he was saying. I'm in good company. If the great apostle Peter didn't know what he was saying sometimes, I don't feel so bad. Verse 34, it says, while he was speaking, while he's speaking, this is an interruption from heaven. A cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. This is heaven saying, you don't need Moses. And you don't need Elijah. God is saying, this is my son. This is Superman. I mean, this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited one. This is who you need. It's not Jesus or Buddha. It's not Jesus or Muhammad. It's not Jesus and your good works or Jesus and your religious observations. It's Jesus. Like He's it. He is my strength. He is my hope. He's our only hope. Now again, remember the original audience. This is Ethan composing a song of worship and prayer and petition and saying, people, I know what's going on in, this, in our country. I know what's just happened, but we need to keep waiting. God has sworn. God has promised. We have to trust in his promises to David. He is our only hope. Now, on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus' resurrection, the message is still the same. We have to wait for him. Trust. Him. My family loves reading the Chronicles of Narnia. I think the Chronicles of Narnia are helpful to understand what, it mean, what does it mean to wait. Right? So in the Chronicles of Narnia, it is winter all the time and never Christmas. It's dark. And the queen of Narnia is bringing destruction and slavery wherever she goes. And listen up, children, because this is important for you, because the story is so well told, because it's children that are going to be God's servants here. When Aslan is on the move, when the Messiah, the king, is coming to save the people, the children have to do something. You don't 
wait outside the wardrobe when Aslan's on the move. You walk through and you enter the fight. So waiting does not mean take a nap. Waiting does not mean give up. Waiting means grab your swords and your shields and engage with God. Be active in your waiting. But make sure that you're still trusting in him, though, to deliver. And so you do what the things that God has told us. We trust his word. We go to the places he tells us to go. We live the lives he's asked us to live because we're waiting for him. But he will be the one who brings the victory. By way of application, I appreciated a, a, a line from one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons from the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards writes this, Christ is at all times equally sufficient for the office he hath undertaken. He undertook the office from eternity, and he, has, and he was sufficient for it from eternity. His power and his wisdom, his love, his excellency and worthiness is at all times equally sufficient for the salvation of sinners and the upholding and glorifying of believers. So I want to use this to kind of apply. First idea is Christ alone is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. To wait on Jesus to save you means that you're going to quit trusting in false saviors, to believe that he alone is sufficient. Uh, it's been said and said rightly that Jesus Christ lived the life we were supposed to live and then he died the death that we deserved. And only he could do that. He was the promised son of David. He was the son of God. Our sin incurred a God-sized penalty, which requires a God-sized price. And so our only hope is a God-sized substitute. And God has promised and God has sent. The question is, though, are you trusting in him? He is sufficient, but do you know that? Have you surrendered your life and said, Christ, you alone can save me. You alone can bring me to heaven. You alone can heal. You alone can forgive. Will you trust him? The Apostle Paul records in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, the man, Christ Jesus. Only one mediator. Only one that can bridge that gap. Only one that can bring us to God. Have you gone through the one mediator? Right? Have you trusted the only one who can save? But I want to talk too, to, to Christians. Edwards said that Christ is sufficient for the upholding and glorifying of believers. Many of you in this room have been Christians for a long time. And maybe you can remember those early days when you became a follower, that you trusted God for everything. You read your Bible like it was God's word. You hungered for him, you prayed to him, you trusted him. But after a while, we start praying a little less. I think in some ways we start hedging our bets. Yeah, I trust Jesus. But the matching program at my company is this percentage. And I don't trust God with my retirement, so I'm not sure I'm going to make that full match. Or maybe I do more than that. Like you start to trust in finances. You trust in your doctor or WebMD because you're cheap. Um, you know, you start looking for all these other things to care for you. And you've, we, we do. We quit waiting on the Lord. 
we don't think that he is sufficient any longer. Hebrews 7 says this, Hebrews 7, verse 23 through 25. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The reason why we can wait on Jesus is his sacrifice is worthy for all time, but he is constantly interceding for us. He pleads before God the Father on our behalf. And so we bring our prayers and we, and we learn to, to trust him. We turn away from, you know, maybe we've been stealing because we've been trusting in money and we don't have enough. Maybe we've been rebelling against some clear command of Scripture because it doesn't make us happy or it seems hard. Or maybe we're lying to cover our backside rather than confessing and trusting that God will take care of us in our honesty. What are we waiting for? Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which is take his yoke of instruction and his path of life upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Way back at the beginning of Psalm 89, it says, I have learned to acclaim you. Right? This is what Jesus is about. He's wanting you to learn to trust him with all of your life. Jesus is saying, I want you to trust you with everything, with your finances, with your family, with your relationships. To tr- learn to trust him, learn to follow him. Um, I'll close with this. I'm driving to church this morning, 7th Avenue, and there's this new big sign at Dunkin' Donuts. Sipping is believing. Sipping is believing. Like, if you want to know that a Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee is good, you got to sip. You got to sip. You got to try. I, there's some really profound religious truths in this statement. You will never know how good God is until you wait on Him. You will never know. Some of you have trusted God through cancer, and you know the goodness of God better than I, ha- than I do in that area. I don't know. Others of you have given sacrificially and lived on little, and you know that God is faithful to provide for his saints and finances, but you will not know that until you sip. And so I'll just ask, just pray right now, like what is the one area of my life where you have, you're not waiting on God? You're hedging your bets. You're solving it in your own power, or you're trusting a human source to take care of you, or some, some creature comfort, or some aspect. That's where I'm really trusting. That's who is really going to deliver. Like, what, one th- and can you just start praying, Lord, I want to I give this to you. I want to wait on you this week. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to ask for wisdom and counsel from a friend. And what does it mean to give this to Jesus and quit trying to solve it myself? Uh, the British writer G.K. Chesterton once said, it's not that people have found Christianity, and not that people have tried Christianity and found it wanting. They found Christianity difficult and therefore left it untried. A lot of times we look at something about Christianity and it just looks difficult, so we don't try it. Here's the deal. God is more committed to you obeying him than you are. <laughs> so if you really will surrender your life to an area you don't understand or you're not trying peace, he will show up. Christianity has never been found tried and wanting. It's all, those who try it will say, blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good.
The Lord has never abandoned me. And when you have doubts, remember this. Jesus Christ did not stay dead. That's the assurance that God is with you. The promised Messiah was killed on the cross for your sins, but he did not stay dead. He is the resurrected one. He is the king. He is worthy. He is honorable. And even if you die obeying him, you won't stay dead either. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, you are good, and your love endures forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that you, you kept your promise. Ethan's cries for a Messiah, for Superman, are answered in a manger. And they are fulfilled on a cross, and they are triumphed on Easter Sunday when Christ walks out of that grave. And so we thank you that you keep your promises and we can wait on you because you'll show up. Amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the reason we take this and come back to this is because uh, it does a lot of things. Uh, one, it, 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 it's a, a weekly reminder of our need for forgiveness. It's a weekly reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a weekly reminder that we, are not, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that Jesus says, I am the bread, and I am the life. People who come to him will not be hungering. And so this meal is this remembrance of what Christ has given us and Christ's commitment to sustain us. At our church family, we invite those who have trusted in Christ and are walking with him to receive this meal and remember. If you haven't given your life to Christ yet, if you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you we can argue, we can go sip at Dunkin' Donuts together and talk about Jesus, that's fine. Um, but I just ask that if you don't know Christ, pass on this meal. Wait till you trust him and profess your faith in baptism and then come and, and take this meal. But as we, what we do is we come through these center aisles and we uh, pick up the elements, then come and be seated and we'll take the meal together remembering that we are one family in Christ. So as soon as the music uh, begins, just invite the front rows to... Uh, pick up a cup and the bread. Thank you.